my predecessor gave me some really good advice. And he said, assets happen. He said, you can go out there every day and do the right thing, make all the right pitches to all the right people, and your assets won't necessarily grow at all because there's just so many other things going on. You have to be talking to the right person or the markets have to be right. There's just a ton of variables that are outside your control. By the same token, you could be out maybe not doing anything right and have one person walk in your door and like Mackenzie Scott, say, here's $8 million. So I, my attitude has always been, and, and by the way, I did the same thing in business too, is, is do the right work in the right way and just sort of trust that everything will take care of itself. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Driven By Podcast, and I'm Sam Coates. This podcast started on a whim in the summer of 2020, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, where I was all in on knowing the deeper drivers behind why my guests were passionate about the work they're building and its impact to society today. Since that time, this podcast has led me to serve corporations, private families, and nonprofit organizations with locations all over the United States in other parts of the world. It's a privilege for me to interview men and women that are all in on what they're building, what they've been through, what they're learning, and its impact to society today. For more information about this podcast, please go to drivenbypodcast.com and be on the lookout where I have a new website dropping soon for the corporate and private work I do. Before we get going, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. T-S. My guest today is Bob Fockler, a former investment banker turned community builder and asset allocator. Americans gave away just over $484 billion last year. So I wanted to know what this looks like when it's done right. Bob is currently the president of the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis which, as he says, is a billion-dollar financial institution. This is a great episode that covers why you should run a nonprofit like a business and why that matters to steward capital well. Paving your path and leaving investment banking to take on this city's community foundation and why you never look back. Generational giving. Who does this well and what happens when it blows up? Plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Bob Fockler, president of the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis. Bob, great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining me for this. I read a quote in March 2020, City of Memphis COO Doug McGowan called the foundation's president, Bob Fockler, about setting up a fund in response to COVID-19 pandemic. Fockler jumped at the idea 
and had a COVID-19 fund set up and running within the week. Since then, the fund has distributed more than one and a half million. Fourteen and a half million now. <laughs> that stuck I, I, out. And I have to say, when Doug called me, I wasn't exactly jumping through the phone looking to do it because we had never been involved in a community-wide appeal before. So when he asked us to do it, I went, eh, that's not really what we do. And he said, you know, I think uh, he could see what was coming with the pandemic. And he knew that government dollars alone weren't going to be enough. So he wanted to raise some private dollars. And so he asked us to do it. And we swallowed hard and did it. So I won't, I won't say I jumped at the chance. I will say I swallowed hard and agreed <laughs> to do it. The reason why I started there, nonprofits are incredible. People that devote their lives to them are incredible. And it's underappreciated. From an organizational standpoint, there's often a lot of criticism with nonprofits about not running as well as maybe a for-profit business would. And if any part of this, you know, I need pushback on, please do. But you've said before when we spent time together that just because it's a nonprofit doesn't mean it, you know, it doesn't need to run like a business. Yeah, it, it absolutely does need to run like a business. Every, every corporation needs to run like a business. I was talk, talking to somebody the other day and I said the only real difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit is their source of revenue. So how'd you get there? I mean, how did that become such a crucial part of how you operate, how you lead, and what y'all been able to do here? Coming to the Community Foundation? Yeah. Well, I, I actually came from a non-traditional background for, for running a community foundation. I actually spent 24 years as an investment banker thinking that I was going to do, you know, make a living as a high-flying investment type. Uh, and so I've been spending the last 16 years um, atoning for those sins, <laughs> I guess. So anyway, I, actually, life as an investment banker actually prepared me pretty well to run what is basically a billion-dollar financial institution, which is what the Community Foundation is. So um, it was never a career plan. I never plotted any of this stuff out. Um, it's been part of a, sort of a picaresque uh, experience, just sort of floating down the Mississippi River on a raft, <laughs> <laughs> taking things as they come. But um, it's been uh, an incredibly fulfilling way to end up because this foundation is so important to this community. Um, this community uh, relies so heavily on the goodwill of folks that care about the city and care about investing in the city. And that's what the Community Foundation is. The Community Foundation is a, is a vehicle for individuals and families and organizations to invest their charitable dollars in the community. And that's what we do on their behalf. Right. So I guess, I mean, I knew that you had been in investment banking for 24 years, and I know about your background. But I guess, are you saying that those 24 years and the environments you're in, the people that hired you, the people that you work for, the people that you hired, the things that you had to meet, the deadlines, the demands, the performance, all of that shaped you and molded you. So when you came here, you didn't take your foot off the gas. The mission changed, but you wanted to bring that same type of intensity, organizational structure, performance, goal setting, et cetera, and just do that here in the nonprofit space. Yeah, I think that had a lot to do with that. I, I will say that, so it, it, I think a lot of the skills that I, that I gained as an investment banker certainly served me well for this. And the the the, the folks that, uh, that were on the search committee that hired me, I, I managed to talk them into that somehow. But at the same time, you know, from in terms of personal mission, my personal mission took a hard left turn from from that of an investment banker where, where it's success is measured by income and, and the deals you did 
to something that's really beyond myself and beyond my bank account was trying to, to do something for the community and, and give back to the community. So and I had a good background in that. Even as an investment banker, I had always been involved in, in a lot of things in the community. And I realized that making a difference in the community, building the community's assets at the end of the day was more important than building my personal assets. Was that a process? Did it gnaw at you for a period of time? Or how did that hard left turn happen? You know, I, I was very successful financially uh, in my investment banking career. And I think as I became, you know, early on when you, you know, you're trying to become financially secure and, and uh, earn something for my family and, and make them secure, you know, until you get to that point, whatever that point is, and you never know, you, that's, a, that's a finish line you never really feel like you're crossing either, by the way. But um, as long as you're pursuing that, that you know, sustainability, financial stability, you know why you think you're doing it. But um, the, what happened with the left turn is I basically got to the point where I realized I had the assets that I needed to, to keep my family healthy um, and safe and well off. Uh, and that all of a sudden earning the paycheck wasn't enough anymore. So the other things that I had been doing in the community – were more fulfilling at the end of the day. So I really wanted to, to take a shot at it. I had been on the board of the Community Foundation. And um, when my predecessor here as president, uh, who was a family friend, by the way, uh, announced that he was retiring, I said, you know, I, is, that's something I'd, I'd, I'd like to do. Um, so I, I, I threw my hat in the ring, not knowing how it would be received. And, um, you know, they foolishly hired me. Did any of your intensity decrease when you came here? No, and I, you, there are intense people in the nonprofit world too. It is a different life for sure. Uh, I had, I had to, the biggest, <laughs> biggest trouble I had short term was, was uh, the work day. I was used to being at work at 7.30 and I would come here at 7.30 and people wouldn't be here for another hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> because I, just because our day is, happens to be a little bit different. But so it's, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a difference in intensity but I think people's motivations and what they're trying to get out of their careers are different in the nonprofit world than, than in the for-profit world. I, I, this is just sort of stream of consciousness, but um, I, had a couple, I, like that. <laughs> I had a couple of partners in the investment banking world who were very good friends of mine. And when I told them I was leaving, um, one of them in particular looked, looked me in the eye and said, what are you doing? And I said, I just want to go do this. And you're like, why would you ever want to do this? You, you're earning a very nice living. Why would you do that? Um, at the time, he wasn't, hadn't been particularly involved in, in much in the community except for his church. And now uh, he has spent uh, several years as, as board chair of, a, of an important nonprofit in the community. And I, I almost feel like I've, I've uh, sucked him along with me into, in, into this world. What do you think he saw that he didn't know at that time? You know, I, I think that, uh, and I knew plenty of people in the investment banking world who, you know, their only life is for the next deal, for the next thing. And um, that it's just, it's so consuming. Uh, it can be so consuming that, that it's not necessarily easy to see things beyond, beyond that, uh, maybe beyond your family. And I had always been involved in the community, so uh, which also frustrated the heck out of him too, by the way. When I'd run off to a meeting, he'd go, you know, you're costing me money every time you walk out the door. And I was like, now, you don't understand. Every time, I, every time I do that, I just keep my brain between my ears because otherwise I'd go crazy. Yeah. You had that curiosity or that interest in it. Yeah. It's just, I, I could, I was never, you know, 100% an investment banker as my partners would readily tell you. Yeah. 
So what they you're just saying that they always knew that you had other things going. Yeah. Did that ever cost you? No, I don't think so. With that one friendship, I think he 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 didn't really understand it for a while. But for most of the folks that I worked with, they understood that that's you know what made me go. Hmm. What have you learned about building a diverse team and having diverse partners in this community and still bringing things together in a way where there's traction, momentum, and execution? I can approach that from several different perspectives. In the investment banking world, I knew that the way to success was bringing a diverse group, a diverse group of skills around the table. There's some people that are good at people skills, some people that are good at crunching numbers, some people that are good at seeing things strategically from 50,000 feet. And in order to be successful, you need to have all of those things to be successful in business. I certainly have seen that same thing here at the Community Foundation, where we need people that are obviously good at, at, at accounting, because we have, we're a very sophisticated financial institution. You need people that, that know what's going on in the community, what, what the community's needs are, uh, and how to access them. You need to know how to approach people and, and show them that the, uh, the things that we do here at the Community Foundation have some real value for people that are charitably inclined. So you need a, a variety of skills. The one thing that I've learned that's different here at the Community Foundation, particularly as we're trying to make an appeal to the broader community to, for everyone to come together to help make this a, a, a better city and a better community, is looking at it from a more conventional diversity perspective, through a conventional diversity lens. In my investment banking world, pretty much everybody looked like me. And in order to be successful in this world, in the community foundation world, I need to have people that look like Memphis. And so that's a very, very different turn on diversity. So diverse skills, but, but we need people here that have diverse backgrounds come from basically all parts of, the, of this community in order to represent this community. So if, if you're willing to engage with me on this, let's say <laughs> what Mackenzie Bezos, she gave, was it 15 million or eight? For, for us, eight. Okay. So let's say somebody like that gives 10 and they want that to be around education. And mm-hmm. this is a made-up example. Mm-hmm. What are your principles, or what are you going to go do to do that, what you just said? Well, a couple things. Most of what we do uh, is, is manage funds for charitably inclined individuals and families. And uh, the, the primary tool is called the Donor Advised Fund. And, and the donor advised nature of it is very important. It means that the donor retains the right to advise really where the grants go. So for the vast majority of our grant making, the donors get to decide where the grants go. So, I, so last year we gave away about 139 million dollars. 138 million of that was basically uh, grants made by donors to where they wanted the, their their own money to go. So I, I get frustrated or or scratched my head a little bit sometimes when people say, "How do you guys decide where the money goes?" Well, for most of it, the donors get to decide where that money goes. Um, for our own dollars, there's a very different answer to that question, and that is we're we're informed by the community. Um, and it, we, are, we are always trying to uh, apply those dollars where they can have the biggest impact. Um, we have community investment principles that we developed three or four years ago through broad community research and, and uh, uh, talking to a lot of folks from throughout this community. And um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a very important part of, of that because Memphis is it's diverse racially um, and certainly polarized to, in, to a great extent. And the minority communities, the black community, has, has been largely disadvantaged historically. 
And that's something that, that we all need to understand and need to try to do something to, to help resolve. And it's not something we can do overnight. So uh, equity issues, trying to right some of those wrongs is, is a big, very big part of, of some of those, uh, how we answer that question you first asked. So if, if, we, if I, to make a, a significant investment in education, a couple of things. One, I first want to know, you know where, uh, what's going on in the educational world, and there's certainly a lot going on in Memphis in education. See where the dollars are being spent and see where the gaps are. We actually did that a couple of years ago. We, had, um, we were going to make about a million-dollar investment over a couple of years, and our grant committee just started asking questions of funders and, and other people in the community of like, where can I make the, the biggest difference in a short period of time, short period of time being three or four years, with a million dollars. And a million dollars sounds like a lot until you try to start changing something in Memphis and a million dollars goes pretty quickly. But it, at that time, um, what they ended up doing was they, they saw that there was a lot of money being spent on education in Memphis since, since you picked on education. But almost all of it was going into the classroom. So it was going to build classrooms and going to equip classrooms, put a good teacher in the front of the classroom. But there wasn't much being done outside the classroom. There wasn't much being done for after-school work. And K-12 through students need a ton of work outside of class, whether it's tutoring or, or help with homework or, or those kinds of things. And then in, then also summer programming. So there's a summer reading loss is a big big issue here in, in, in Memphis, as in most urban places, where you've, you've, you, you do such a great job for nine months of the year in the classroom, and then the kids go sit at home for, for three months, and, and you lose a lot of the gain. But if, they're, if you keep those kids reading and stimulated, you can, you can preserve a lot of that. So, and that's, that's proven through data. Absolutely. So you look for you try to drill down on something Absolutely really specific data like that. Informed. Absolutely. And then data that's informed. what you're talking about for the biggest ROI. So then you'll deploy that million dollars to bridge that gap between the school year, something and, like and that. And that's what we did. We spent a program called Beyond the Classroom, where we spent um, a little over a million dollars over f- four years and invested in a variety of after school and summer programming. Did were you able to test the impact of it to see any data on that? Yeah, we were. So. Rather than just um, investing in programs, what we actually did was invested in increasing the capacity of, of practitioners in the field. So I'll, I'll pick on one. Um, one that, that uh, was a high-performing practitioner to start with was Porter Leith. Um, and they came into the program, I think, really just to be a good team player. I think they thought that they did a good job in doing what they were doing. But our funding actually improved their own data collection and, and use of data. What they were doing is they were testing kids at the beginning of a semester and testing kids at the end of a semester. And then they were adjusting their, their practices based on you know, what happened during the semester. What our funding helped them do was be able to evaluate on a rolling basis. So they could do it not just at the beginning of the semester, but as you go week to week. And they were able to put that data back into the classroom week to week so that if they saw that a kid was falling behind, they didn't have to wait till the end of the semester to, to do something about it. So they were able to, to absolutely put that funding and put the, the new information technology to work immediately into, for, for better outcomes. I'm kind of getting down in the weeds on this, but I'm somewhat familiar in my own way just because I do have a donor of us account. I don't use it here with you, <laughs> but uh, I met you after and, you know, I like I like the folks I do it with, but I have a lot of respect for you and everything that I've heard about you. And so just a little bit of context there. But, you know, you said that 
you all deployed, what, $163 million in grants? 139, yeah. Okay. And you have over a billion dollars in assets under management. Right. And Atlanta, for example, you said they have a billion and a half assets under management. And the metro Atlanta area is a lot stronger than Memphis. Right. Correct? Yes. It's larger and it's, it's relatively wealthier. So obviously you're doing something right. In your asset size, you said when you started, it was at $280 million, Is right. that correct? Right. And now it's, again, like I said, over a billion. Right. So it seems that even with the city coming to you, McKinsey Bezos, others, it seems like people are looking more and more to you and your team to help share how to steward those assets, not just send it to where these people want it. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tell you, we have one thing, I have one thing going for me that, that the president of the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta doesn't have, and that's Memphians. <laughs> Memphians care more about their city than pretty much anybody does anywhere else. And that, that has been proven. The Chronicle of Philanthropy has done surveys a couple of times most recently in 2017, on uh, propensity to give, and Memphis came out number one. So and what, that, what that measurement is, Memphians spend a higher percentage of their disposable income on charitable giving than citizens of any other city. Why? So, so Why do you think it is? You know, I, I've, I've, I've wondered about that, and I've, I've thrown out a couple things on that. One is I think that we're closer to the need in Memphis. I don't, you can't, there's there's no place in Memphis that you, where you can be or drive or go where you don't see the need. Whether you don't see you you see poverty, you see folks on the street. You uh, you're closer to it. I also think that we're less mobile than a lot of other big cities. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, where there are a lot of people moving in and moving out all the time. I think people tend to be more based in Memphis, more rooted in Memphis, and the greater community. And I would by by Memphis, I would include northern Mississippi, eastern Arkansas, and west Tennessee, the, 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 whole, the whole big island that's the Mid-South. We're, we tend to be from here. So I think when you're from someplace, you, you tend to be more invested in it. So those are, those are a couple of things. I also think that we feel like our dollars can do something. And I, think, I think we're small. You know, we're a big city with big city problems. But I think that we, we tend to feel that we can make a difference with, with a, a couple of dollars. I mean, that's, that's why people are, will, will write a check for anything if they think it's making a difference. And I think that people kind of feel like they've seen things happen that, 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 that's good. So that just motivates them more to, to, to write another check or support those institutions more. Thanks for answering that. I was curious about why and how you saw it. But to go back, so is it a fair statement that with your success, Community Foundation success, that you, your role evolves into more of a stewardship standpoint on how to best allocate an ROI versus only sending it to where people want. Is that fair? Um, I tell you, where, where, where we're headed, it's very fair because we're in the process of, of uh, making a broader appeal, kind of a permanent appeal to the community to help us capitalize a charitable endowment for the benefit of the community um, that is spent by the community, that, is, that, is, that the community decides where the grants go. And that would be through a broad community-based grant program as our, as our own proprietary grant-making has been for the last 30 years. But again, we, we've only been spending about a million dollars a year. Our hope is to build an endowment that will be, you know, $100 million, $200 million, $500 million someday uh, that will make a, a significant annual impact on this community, and when it comes to that, yes, absolutely, will be absolutely informed by 
by our citizens and, and, and by our neighbors and, and invest in the things that they care about and where they think change should be made. You know, I, I say, and I'm going to get myself into trouble here, but that's, that's kind of why I'm doing this too. <laughs> you know, we're really lucky to have the, all the philanthropic institutions that we have in Memphis. We've got private foundations. We've got corporate foundations. Um, and we're, we're very lucky that, that, that they're here and that they do what they do. But I think a lot of times when we see where they are putting their dollars, there are a lot of people that would go, you know, that, that's not where, where I would do it if, if I had the dollars to spend. Uh, so I, it, the, the broader community might make different, different decisions on where those dollars would be spent. Because you feel those foundations or those groups, individuals, et cetera, they are not looking at the data or they're not talking to the experts to find the biggest needs or why? No, I, I think just because their, their interests are different. They, they're, they're trying to achieve different ends. It's all personality driven and it's not, not community driven? No, I think, it's, I think it's just a matter of taste. There, there's, there's, there, there's a whole lot to, to invest in here in Memphis. A, a prudent person may decide to put their money here, but someone else, another prudent person may, may choose to, make their, to, to invest their money someplace entirely different. And I think that that's what I'm saying. I, I I don't mean to say, and don't get me wrong, I don't mean in any respect that where uh, private foundations and, and corporate foundations spend their money is misguided. I, I think it's it's well intended for sure. But it's just I just think that there are there are a lot of folks who go if if I had the money to spend, I would invest in some other things that affect more people day to day. So to boil it down to kind of the brass tacks, the community foundation is for the greater good of that community. And so then, therefore, you are experts and you're credible at finding the most important needs for the thriving and prosperity of that specific community. And so the benefit of doing a large raise like this in an endowment and to be able to do this for a long period of time and also make it sizable enough to where the annual contributions are enough to make an impact, you're looking at from a data and logic standpoint, what's actually best for that community, and there's a north star to the giving. You just defined it, a community foundation. That's exactly right, and that is exactly what a community foundation is. A community foundation is a charitable institution created for a specific geographic area. In our case, Memphis in the Mid South, purely for the benefit of that geographic area, and so that's the only reason that we exist is to make Memphis in, in, in the Mid South a better place. So our appeal is to to our neighbors. Um, to improve the lives of our neighbors. And what you're saying through earlier part of the interview is that it's taken time to get to this point, to be actually, to actually be able to fulfill the purpose of a community foundation. Yeah, and I, well, and that's a philosophical question too. And, and this is going to get a little, maybe a little wonky. Okay, bring it. But, uh, and I can get into the, the history of this community foundation, but community foundations are all created to benefit their community. Now, what is, what is benefiting the community? How do you do that? At the end of the day, I think it is marshalling resources to solve the needs that are, that are truly identified. But I think earlier in our history, and this is not un, unlike uh, most community foundations, uh, where you, you start out just trying to, to find people that are cheerfully inclined and wave them in your door and, it, and then let them do whatever they want to do. But you're, you're, for a community foundation like that, its collective impact, its, its impact on the community is not measured in, in direct service to direct identif- directly identified needs. It's indirect through what our collective donors want us to do. 
So that, that's where we started. So we started with, you know, 100 or 200 families, and our job was just to, to manage their charitable giving and make it as efficient as it could be, as low cost as it could be to them, but, but it allowed them to invest wherever they wanted to invest. But the impact was where they wanted to invest. So I think early on our view was, you know, we're having a huge impact on this community because of the collective efforts of our donors. But there again, it's where they collectively wanted to make their investments. Where we're trying to move is, is, is a more centralized effort. Well, first of all, we're not going to go away from that. First of all, we're, we're still, we, still, we manage about 1,200 charitable funds right now. And we're not going to tell those 1,200 people any more to do with their money than, I would have, than we would have for the last 53 years. Uh, it's, it, we're still here to do what, whatever they want us to do. But in the meantime, we're stepping forward and saying we want to, to raise more resources and invest those resources where the community needs are the, are the greatest. So take a more responsible uh, stance in saying we can still help all those families do what they want to do, but in the meantime, we've got to step forward and raise resources for, to, to directly impact where we see community needs. There was, what, two or three predecessors to you? There are two predecessors. I'm the Your third. father was the first. My father, and this is almost a coincidence, my father was the first employee of the Community Foundation. Um, well, take a half step back. You want, you, want, you want to dive into a little history? Sure. The Community Foundation, and I like to tell this story just because I think it's, it tells a little bit about Memphis, but the Community Foundation is one of two community institutions that was created as a direct result of the sanitation strike in 1968. Um, the other is MIFA. You know, MIFA, all the, all the ministers in town came together in, in support of the sanitation workers. The, the, all the, the ministers had this new association that they didn't know what to do with, and so they created the, the Metropolitan Interfaith Association, which is the original acronym for MIFA. Uh, it took them a while, to, to, but eventually they developed a, a basket of services that has made MIFA one of the most important social service agencies in the city. Um, the Community Foundation was created by a group of business and community leaders, maybe at a, at a, a higher level. The, the MIFA is sort of a grassroots level. Um, to say we've done, you know, the the sanitation strike was was a was a terrible historical event here in Memphis. We we need to find our way out of this, and how do we do that? And uh, after interviews with a couple other cities, a couple of our peer cities, those peer cities said, "What you really need need to do is drive charitable giving," and that is usually best done through a community foundation. Encourage your citizens to to be charitable, and that will help make you a better place. So they did that. They created uh, the Community Foundation. We were founded in 1969, shortly after the sanitation strike. But the, um, <laughs> businessmen, being businessmen, as, as the leaders, the original leaders of the Community Foundation were, they, they thought they could handle, they thought they could manage a, a foundation on their own <laughs> without any staff. And after five years of not really doing much of anything, um, they said, you know, uh, if this is going to actually be anything, we need to put somebody in charge of it. So they, they uh, went to hire somebody to, to run the community foundation for the first time, and they they went out and talked to people, and and they ended up um, hiring my dad. As it turned out, is he still alive? No, he passed away in 2016. Okay, but he he did uh, he was around to see me be, become the third president, though. So that was kind of a surrealistic thing for him. Because you started when 20, 2006. He saw you for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you say with what you did with it up to that point? Well, I, you know, I think it's it. Uh, and he, he and I, he and I were very close. And I, I think what we realized was the skills that it takes to to do a startup, uh, and the skills that it takes to run a two hundred eighty million dollar institution are two different sets of skills. 
So I think that he realized, and I think I realized, that the skills that he had that, that, that got this place started, I don't have. And I think that he realized that the skills that he had probably wouldn't serve well for a, for a much larger community foundation that, that I inherited. So it, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a cool story. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. What are those skills from your side of it? Not you specifically, but to take it from a more mature place and get it to the next level? I mean, from my perspective, we were a, a, a mature financial institution um, that had, you know, uh, at, that, at that time, $280 million worth of assets. We had a variety of, of investment portfolios. And I came from the investment world. He came from the nonprofit world. So, uh, you know, managing uh, people uh, in a financial environment, managing you know, $280 million or now a billion dollars in, in assets, those are different skills than than you know, my father crafted a lot of the, the basic operating uh, uh, procedures. So, you know, here's how you make a grant. Here's, you know, here's how you do some of the, the, those things. I don't have the patience for a lot of that stuff. I'm good at, I'm good at fixing policies. I'm not good at writing policies. Uh, so, I, so I think he appreciated the fact that I stepped into his shoes. And I, from my perspective, it's it, it really more irony than anything else because I think when I moved here, I moved here when I was in high school, and I went away to college, and I think my intention was to never be back. It was to go away to college and become rich and famous somewhere else, and only to find myself you back. You guys are on podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. That's all right. But, but you know, I, I, I think that my intent at the time, you know, the intent of an 18- or 22-year-old that I'm going to be rich and famous and, and show my parents, you know, how great I am, only to find myself sitting in his chair. So as I said, I'm, as it turns out, I'm not, I'm not smarter than my father. I'm only exactly as, as smart as my father. So I guess to double down on that a little bit, you're saying from a delegation standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from an action standpoint, to some degree from a flexibility standpoint of your own time to be able to act and from a relationship standpoint to be able to be connected enough to find the right people at the right time in a sizable way. Are those the things that I'm just curious about what it actually is with how you frame that? Did I reflect that back correctly? Yeah, I mean, people has a lot to do with that. I mean, he he never managed a lot of people. And I, I don't know that, that I'm the greatest manager in the world, but I do have a lot of experience managing people uh, in the investment banking world and now in the nonprofit world. And, you know, success uh, of any enterprise of scale is all about managing people and managing people productively. 
Um, and in my case, that's bringing in somebody who's a better manager of people than I am. Uh, so to, to run the day to day operations of this place, which was a very good decision on, on, on my part. But but it is about putting together the organization that is profitable, and I and I do I do mean profitable even in the, even in the nonprofit sense. When you talked about bringing in somebody to to run the people side of it, you said you did that early on, and it was the right decision for you. Do you always get what you want? But <laughs> uh, boy, boy, I thought of a great smart aleck answer to that, <laughs> that, that, that 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 probably would have ended my marriage. But anyway. No, no. I, I, the mission of this organization is so broad that you know we'll never cross that finish line. Well, this this community can always be better than it is, and we'll always be trying to to make it better than than it is. So, so it, it'll never be enough, and it'll it'll never be where it needs to be on my watch, or or, or probably on the watch or two after that. So, you know, in terms of putting together an organization, do I do I get what I want? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but you don't have control of the people you hire either. So um, we just lost a key member of our finance team who went to to work somewhere else for more money. Um, that happens in, even in our world, in, even in a successful organization. So it's a process that that keeps rolling and it, it never ends. You you never to to misquote a, a good line from a movie. I like. You never cross the, the the goal line. You never get to spike the ball. Yeah. You're never done. So what do you, I mean, is it just this structure, this style, for you to roughly close to 5X, the assets under management, in roughly 16 years when you had two predecessors prior going back to 1969? Is it merely that? Well, and I've, I've you know, scale is, is, a, is a hard thing to play with. So uh, my father took over a, a foundation that had a million dollars in assets and it was 20 million dollars when he when he when he left so 20 million dollars is a very small foundation but he 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 grew at 20x uh, his successor Kid Smith who by the way was a was a mentor of mine and a, and a family a family friend as well um, and also one of the real inspirations behind MIFA by the way took it from 20 million to 280 million so it was 14x. So if I'm only four x, <laughs> like uh, I don't know, um, there, there's definitely more dollars. But on a, on a multiple basis, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm not as productive as my two predecessors. I hear you. So when you're talking about now, you're talking about the fund you'll raise, the fund you'll deploy, the difference between 1,200 donor advised funds versus what you're continuing to do, and you and your team. When you look at a nonprofit from a due diligence standpoint and analysis, and you're trying to see what actually creates a good return on investment on these dollars? What are you looking for? And, and the reason I ask that, just because it all seems so emotional at times, or we all seem like just operate out of our own bias. And, yeah. and, and then also, too, you know, people get things when they give. When they give things to certain things, they get things out of it. And you seem to be, at least for purposes of this conversation, there's a responsibility to the investor, there's responsibility to the community to do that in a way that's best for the community and not out of any emotional or biasness. So if that's fair, what are you looking for? Well, definitely looking for return on the dollar. But, but I re, there, it's gotten fashionable to talk about return on the dollar, re, return on investment. 
moving the needle. I mean, all, all the buzzwords in ways that I, I agree with, but, but don't tell the whole story. So if you're trying to solve a problem, then you, your measurement is, is, has the problem been solved or not? But a lot of what happens in the nonprofit world, and this is what it's sometimes criticized for, is um, just treating an issue that's out there and it's maybe not even solving a problem. So, and, I, and I'll give an example of the Mid-South Food Bank. Mid-South Food Bank feeds a lot of people every day. Are they solving a problem? Are, are they getting people out of the need for, for food? Maybe not. Um, I hope somebody's doing that somewhere. Um, but the fact that they're, they're feeding thousands of people every day is, is a demonstrable fact on the one hand and a, and a huge necessity on the other. So I, I would love to be able to say we're, we're bringing people out of poverty where they no longer need food. But in the meantime, we got to make sure that the food bank's fully funded. Uh, and I'd also argue um, the same thing. Uh, for things like the arts, I mean, uh, so many, so much of our arts community is is in the form of nonprofits, whether it's theater or or music or or the visual arts. A lot of times, that's you know they're not they're not fixing anything, they're not solving anything, they're they're just doing their performing their mission. So they're they're hopefully reaching as many people as they possibly can. But so are they? So for a, so let's just say a, a, a theater group. If there's you know X number of people coming in their door and they're getting what they want and that's enriching this community in terms of the the arts, then that is a valid a good return on my dollar. Yes, I would like to solve problems. We would I'd love to be able to deal with educational issues and homelessness and and poverty in this community and I and somebody needs to. But there are a lot of other things that for which there are demonstrable returns. That are, that are a little bit more challenging because it's, it's sort of the same thing day in and day out. So you're saying it's multifaceted. It and, is, absolutely. And so some of the things provide immediate needs, and some of the things that you're doing, you're trying to push for solutions that hopefully make a dent on those needs into the future, but you're not fixated on one or the other. It's diversified. Right. And so then you measured it through, are people coming through the doors? Are people happy with what they're getting? I mean, you're just measuring it that way, but, right. but you look at it holistically. Right. If a nonprofit is not operating well, what does that look like to you over time? And I've got a lot of experience. I've been I've been a funder. In the, we're wearing various hats of the nonprofit community since 1983, so I've been I've been doing this for a while. Um, it's a that's a hard question. Uh, uh, you really look at uh, its service levels at at transformative behaviors. But it's hard to look at. It really takes understanding the, their business model and understanding the people that are doing it. It's hard to necessarily just look at a, a financial, uh, an annual report or a, a, an audited financial and, and get under the, the numbers just by looking at the numbers. And I'm a financial analyst by training. But there's, you got to understand what you're seeing because there's a lot of different ways of, of producing numbers. You, you could have an organization that, that appears to be very efficient um, but maybe it's just the way they're they're preparing their numbers. Or by the same token, what I see more often around here is is the number is agencies that appear to be not very efficient, but they actually are doing a, a much better job than you think they are. And it's really just because of the way they prepare their numbers. So it's 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 you have to be you have to understand what you're looking at when you're looking at numbers. Some people have more information or more advice or 
more inputs on how to position and structure things versus others. And you're saying that you can't always take it exactly how you see it. And so you get it, you get to dig. Right. You have to understand the business model. And it's the same, you know, again, this is, this is the same in investment banking too. When you make an investment, you know, it's, you can't just look at the numbers. You have to understand who's, who's running the business and, and uh, you know, how it's operating, what, what its growth potential is. So it's, you need to get under the numbers. If it, if it were just numbers, than than anybody could do it. Um, it, it, it. There's a there's there's an as much art to investing and, and to in, whether it's financial investing or investing in in, uh, in the community. I need to be fact checked on this, but <laughs> I saw that there's 190 Catholic foundations in the United States. Do you know offhand how many community foundations are in the United States? Uh, the numbers are somewhere around 750. Of the 750. How many of those foundations do you think are at a place where they can advise, give insight, and help actually steward assets from a return on investment standpoint versus just give money where people want it to be given? The vast majority of community foundations, and I'm, uh, I, I don't know that a whole lot of, of my peers in the, in the field will be listening to this anyway. But um, You never know, honestly. You never I know. Mean, I say that humbly. But and, like, an awful lot of community foundations are really small. Um, there are, uh, you know, probably no more than 300 that are, that are more than 250 million in assets. That may be a little low. So that's probably right. So there are two thirds of, of community foundations are very, very small. So they're, most of them are going to be transaction oriented. That's just trying to, to process gifts and grants for their donors. Uh, the ones that have size, an awful lot of them do that as well. So uh, it is the the really the larger and more sophisticated community foundations that have crossed that line into trying to to bring about real community transformation through their work, through the the resources that are, they're trying to draw, uh, and through their work with their donors. So, would you say fifty? I, I hope it's more than fifty, hundred, hundred and fifty. So, take Memphis. People listen to this that are outside of Memphis, but just take Memphis for this question. If you took the community foundation out of Memphis over the last 53 years, Mm -hmm. what would the effect have been on Memphis? That's an interesting question. Uh, So we work with 1,200 families, um, and those 1,200 families have invested close to $2 billion in in Memphis and the Mid-South over those 53 years. If the community foundation hadn't been around, a lot of those same families would have been investing in their community. Um, But I'm convinced that they that they wouldn't have had the, the the resources because the tax advantages and some of the other pieces that we bring to the table uh, have empowered and grown their grant making there are a lot of uh, I think we've inspired some people to to be involved that wouldn't have been involved anyway so I don't know how to quantify that I, so if you say that that we've facilitated two billion dollars worth of grant making if we hadn't been around, there, most of those families would have been doing something, but it probably wouldn't have been to the tune of $2 billion. When people start giving or when people start getting involved, like you talked about your friend earlier who's chairman of the board or has mm-hmm. been, yeah. can that be done through intellect or is it a heart thing or is it some of both? Um, we, internally, we just did one of those, uh, uh, for our staff, we did one of those you know, personality profile things, you know, your head, heart, and body, those kinds Which of things. Which one? Which one do you do? Enneagram. Okay. What's your number? I'm a five. Okay. I'm an eight. 
I'm a five with with, with a strong sense of eight. So you're like a professional eight. <laughs> you can work in an office eight. There's a lot of us that can't so, fall in line. So I, I, I mean, I think that sustained. It's certainly there's a heart to everything you do. Anything you do for somebody else, there's got to be some heart to. But I don't think, and we certainly can. You can certainly make an appeal to somebody through their heart. But I don't think that uh, sustained charitable giving happens without your head and feeling like that something is actually something useful and beneficial is actually happening as a result of that. I, I, and I'm a head guy anyway, but maybe I'm a head case. But <laughs> but I think that the stuff that comes from purely from the heart it doesn't isn't sustainable. So it's both. I, I think it has to be both. Can it be only head? Um, yeah, it, that's how that's that's uh, you know, self interest. <laughs> so you, I can I can make a pitch for somebody to make a to do something, uh, and I I know some some of our donors that some of the, an awful lot of their grant making is is to to benefit kind of either, either their business or um, some of their related interests. Um, but I don't think that you know you still have to want to do something. How have you and your team been able to? reset the goalpost, so to speak. You said you never thought you'd hit a billion assets under management when you got here. Now you're over that. You said 1.2, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it, but right at, right at 1 billion now. So can you, because uh, you said the market. It's the market, flux, right? Flux yeah. Ways. If you could fix the markets, that would be great too. Yeah. What was your process for hitting that still, it sounds like being passionate about what you're doing, engaged in what you're doing, and figuring out the next thing when you never thought you'd be there. Can you, can you talk through that for a second? Yeah, I mean, I, this is going to be sort of off the wall, but uh, my predecessor gave me some really good advice. Uh, and he said, assets happen. He said, you can go out there every day and, and do the right thing, make all the right pitches to all the right people, and your assets won't necessarily grow at all because there's just so many other things going on. You have to be talking to the right person or the markets have to be right or, or there's just a ton of variables that are outside your control. On the, by the same token, you could be out, maybe not doing anything right, and have one person walk in your door and, and, and like like Mackenzie Scott say, "Here's eight million dollars." So I, my attitude has always been, and, I, and by the way, I did the same thing in business too: is is do the right work in the right way, and um, just sort of trust that everything will take care of itself. We've certainly, and that's why service has been so important to us. So the the, the serving those twelve hundred core donors and providing uh, them high levels of service at a relatively low cost uh, so that they're satisfied, they're telling their friends, that helps a lot. And that's, that, that lets you be in the right place at the right time when somebody like Mackenzie Scott wants to give you $8 million. So we've, we've been beneficiaries of a, a number of, of significant donors who, uh, for whatever reason, have walked in our door. Um, but it's because we, I, I like to think it's because we were doing the right right work in the right way all along. What do you think she looked for to know if, she, if you were going to make her list similar to the way you would look at others if they fit your list? Yeah, well, I, the way that happened was pretty strange. And, and um, my chief operating officer is the one that, that really worked more directly. We got a call out of the blue from a consultant. And she said she was a consultant for, uh, for a philanthropist who was looking at making an in, investment in Memphis. And this was about, uh, this was several months into the, to the COVID fund. And we did some really great work with the COVID fund 
and particularly early on, we spent in the, in the first nine months of the COVID fund, we spent about $5 billion uh, investing in a variety of, of, of programs, including direct investment in non- nonprofits that were on the front lines trying to deal with people's immediate needs. Keep them solvent. Yep. Keep them fed, keep them clothed, keep them healthy. Give them protection. Yes. Uh, and then also try to help build back some of the agencies that have been hurt as a result of all the things that had happened during the pandemic. So the, the consultant um, just started asking us, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing it? How have you been doing it? So all through a very sophisticated process yeah, where and they compiled the data. They, they did. And, and we were able to show them how we were doing it. And one of the things we were doing, you know, when you, an awful lot of grant makers, if, you have a, if you're going to spend a million dollars, you have this very convoluted process that will take you six months to go front to back. And you have, you have people fill out, you know, acres and acres of, of paperwork. We didn't do that during COVID. We, 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 we needed to get the money on the streets. So we put together a committee of smart people who were in touch with the community, uh, including representatives of both city and county government and United Way and, and us. And you cut the bureaucracy out we of cut it. Cut the bureaucracy. We, we met every week. We met every Friday and, and just kind of went around the horn. What's going on? What are you hearing? And then we started making grants. We, if we took in $100,000, we spent $60,000. So we were trying to hold some back for, for, for the future. And we, for, I think for about 12 or 14 weeks, we made grants every week. And I think when we showed that and then we showed some of the other creative things we were doing with, with the COVID fund, um, we weren't just making grants. We were, we were doing, providing training and trying to improve the, the performance of the agencies that we were funding. So, for instance, one of the things we found is, is a lot of agencies in town, particularly black-led organizations, were having trouble accessing resources, having trouble approaching foundations or approaching other funders. So we did some um, targeted training for, for fundraising, things like that. To get involved elbow deep in right. that organization to where you can help them raise money, not just from you that you're sending it to them, but you're leveraging your payroll and your expertise as a consultant to help them see what other people are looking for. Yeah, the, 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 the terrible analogy, the terrible analogy is we didn't just give them a fish, we were hopefully teaching them to fish. But anyway, um, so the, you know, the consult, we told the consultant, and, and uh, this is what we're doing. And she went away, and she came back and said, well, the, the, the philanthropist that she was working on would like to make an investment in Memphis. I'm like, great. And then she liked to make an investment in this fund. I'm like, that's great. And you know, happy, to, happy to, to facilitate that. And she goes, well, and by the way, it's $8 million. So wait, no, wait, what? Into that COVID fund. Yeah. So that $8 million from her was only into that COVID fund. Correct. Did you have to uh, send it all out? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. We, and we, we, we raised $14.5 million, and we spent $14.5 million. Okay. And that's an important thing, too. Yeah, there, were, there was no friction in there. There was not like, you know, 10% off the top that went somewhere else. So a lot of people, when they get excess capital or excess money, they blow it. I think we can all say maybe we've done that personally, and then it's common professionally. Can you maybe explain through your own principles and experience, when you get an influx of capital like that, $8 million, how do you do that at an impressive rate from a speed standpoint? But how else do you do that from the right stewardship standpoint? That's a, that's a great question, and I'd love to answer it. Um, because we, we thought we were close. This is at the end of 2020, uh, where we, we, I think it was just November or December of 2020, when we heard about the $8 million from Mackenzie Scott. Um, we were in the process of what we thought was winding up the COVID fund. We thought we were, we were just about done. We were doing everything we could. We'd raised about $5 billion. We spent about $5 billion. 
And between that and some other resources, we had some additional funds to, to keep going. So we were able to, we did more of what we had been doing. In other words, we, we had done, we made some additional grants to help agencies. But we actually took a step back. We said with significant assets, we can make um, some other uh, more crucial, enduring investments in the community. One of the things that we tried to do, and, and this is not everything works, um, one of the things that we heard a lot about, and you still hear a lot about, is, is uh, yeah, mental health. You know, there are a lot of mental health challenges in Memphis and the Mid-South, and the, the pandemic only made them worse. So one of the things we tried to do was bring the community together to, to come up with a, a new infrastructure uh, dealing with the, the mental health issue. And not in, to get into the uh, whole lot of the detail, but we tried for several months to, to pull together that infrastructure and decided it was not going to be effective. So we actually abandoned that project. But we did take on a couple other significant investments that uh, will endure and, out, in fact, outlive COVID. But it was long-term. Uh, yeah, we made, we made a very large investment in Hospitality Hub, which was in the process of creating a, a new center downtown to deal with people experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Um, and that's going to make a huge difference. But one of the things that, that I'm proudest about is one of the things that happened with the pandemic is obviously, unfortunately, people were, were dying. And a lot of those folks were, were, were not particularly wealthy folks, and they ended up at, at a place like Regional One, our public hospital. Regional One, unlike the private hospitals, all have palliative care programs, had programs that teach their staff how to deal with end-of-life issues. Regional One did not have that. Um, so they, they not only had you know, lots of folks who unfortunately were at the end of their lives um, and they were dealing with uh, doctors and nurses who were not trained in how to deal with that. And then on top of that, they're having to deal with families who weren't in the room. They were on a cell phone. And it was just, it, it was as bad a situation probably as you can possibly imagine. Long story short, with a million dollars from the COVID fund and some other donor dollars, um, we have launched a new palliative care program at Regional One that, that will be perpetuated uh, through time and constantly teach doctors and nurses uh, at Regional One, at our, at our public hospital, how to deal with end-of-life issues. Uh, hopefully, uh, they will not be dealing with pandemics, but they might be. In any event, they're certainly dealing with other uh, individuals that are, that are dealing with, with end-of-life issues. So that's, that's, a, that's an investment that was timely, um, but will be enduring. So very strategic, and it solved an immediate need. Yes. But it was sizable enough from an endowment standpoint that it'll be into the future. It will be serving this community forever, right. So what you're saying, to go back to my original question, how you looked at that was, A, we need to essentially syndicate this money but at the same time, we need to think about what short-term immediate that needs to be done. And then for the best use of these funds, what do we need to do that's going to be lasting, that still accomplishes what we need to do here? And that's how you did it, like those two examples Absolutely. through Regional One and the Hospitality Hub. Absolutely. That's pretty awesome. If money gets in the right hands of the right group, what happens? People get helped. People get served. Or in the case of the arts, maybe they get entertained. Um, but it's it's uh, hardworking people that are that are meeting the, the the needs of Memphis and the Mid South every day. Whether it's serving a meal, whether it's trying to to uh, teach, uh, train somebody for a new career to help get them out of poverty, or whether it's performing in the symphony, 
Um, all those things make make Memphis a better place. And that's uh, you know if if you're if you're doing charitable giving right, those things are happening. And it's not just one thing; it's it's that whole that whole gigantic menu of things. If money gets in the hands of the wrong group, what happens? Well, the money gets spent <laughs> for sure, and there is no benefit from it. You know, we, there there's always somebody trying to take advantage of somebody else. There have been a couple high-profile examples in the nonprofit world around here where uh, either somebody's paying themselves too much or or dollars are not transforming into service. So today, I mean, this is a really sad day here in Memphis for a lot of us because of Liza Fletcher, Liza Welford Fletcher. They announced her that it was her body that they found yesterday. But, but I know just generally speaking, from a citywide standpoint, community-wide standpoint, everything that I've seen that GDP of Memphis is flat or small decrease. There's some conflicting data. Please tell me if, if I'm wrong on anything. Crime is obviously a serious situation here in Memphis. Education, uh, there's been a lot of challenges. I'm not going to go into detail or act like I have an agenda on it, but just from a, from a teacher standpoint and then just with things going on, I think I saw the city unemployment was what, six point some odd percent, which is, you know, higher than Mm -hmm. national unemployment. I'm not saying this to be negative. I'm just saying this to get down to the kind of brass tacks of it. When you think about the city today and you think about the the work and you think about this next initiative and earlier you talked about jobs, you even think about the Rise Foundation, things that y'all have done. What has to happen for things to truly get traction, and evolve the way that it should? Well, I think we need to come together, for one thing. We, ha- we need to understand what the issues are, and we need to come together and, and put our resources where they, can, where they can actually make a difference. Quick aside, you mentioned the Rice Foundation. The Rice Foundation was created under this roof. The Rice Foundation was created by the Community Foundation about 20, 25 years ago. Um, and that's, and the, the reason I brought that up is because that's to help teach financial self-sufficiency, right? right? right. And so... Anyhow, I brought it up for a reason. Yeah. But it affects employment. It affects automation, manufacturing. It affects all these things that the world's moving fast and COVID shifted things quite a bit. But it seems like it's certain types of jobs as a whole are only going to decrease. The world's going to be more competitive. Things are more globalized and all these things, at least from how I read it, affect what we're talking about here today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I just think we need to come together and um, pull together. Uh, so that we're we're listening to each other and li- we're listening to the people that are that are hurting, and then trying to find a, a serious way to 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 solve the hurt. If you were in charge, what would that look like? Well, I mean, I, obviously we're we're putting a lot of resources into trying to build this new endowment because I think that's that's part of the answer. I think the other half of our house, which is managing twelve hundred funds and and getting people to be charitable into whatever their own interests are is part of the answer too. So I don't, I don't think I've got a monopoly on, on good ideas. So I think just being caring. So I guess we're back to that heart thing, but being caring, being thoughtful about what, what you're doing, whether it's making a difference or not um, and listening. And I I just, I I don't think we do a lot of listening a lot of times in, in, in our, on the charitable side, we, uh, we tend to, to act maybe, more with the heart and don't listen to kind of the other issues. So are you saying 
listening with what the issues actually are on the ground and then being open with how you're going to use those funds and then acting accordingly. Yeah. Yes. And you're saying, again, a lot of times people that have that, they're not accustomed to being within a foundation that does help structure and guide right. how to do that. And people often only want to do what they want to do. Right. And you're saying that's not an efficient use of capital over the long term. That is, that's right. What do you want most for the next 10, 15 years? Well, an NBA championship for one, <laughs> uh, but that's probably not what you're looking at. Uh, you know, I, we, we we're, we're fortunate to live in a caring city, and I would like to see us continue to come together to solve the problems that we have um, and, and quit fighting with each other. Uh, and I think we've, we've started to do that some. I mean, I think we've, we, we're not, um, you know, we're certainly polarized in a lot of different ways, but we're starting to believe that the, the problems that we have are fixable, and, but only if we, if, if we do listen to each other. One example of that is kind of the, the, all the investment that we've made in, in public education. You know, when I moved to Memphis in the 70s, which was shortly after busing, where a lot of the, so much of the white community had left public education, and I think to a great extent, um, a, lot of, a lot of this community that left public education basically said, well, I don't care about public education anymore. My kids are in private school or, or in whatever schools that they ended up in. And that the public schools are the problem of whoever else, whoever they are. Um, but I think now, 50 years down the line, um, they've realized that if, if that's the way you, we, we, we approach public education, and we're not doing a good job of educating our kids, then we're going to continue to, to not have the economic opportunities and the economic growth that you talked about, that we still, still don't have the kind of growth that we'd like to have. We're not going to be as secure a community as we like to, like to be, not, not going to be as safe as, as we like it to be. Um, and we're not going to hit a lot of the things we, we want to do. So I think that's part of the reason that we've started to see some of the folks that have left the public schools and maybe they're not coming back to the public schools, but I think this, many of them are starting to invest in trying to make the public schools better, even if they're not. Because of the greater there. good. Yeah. And self-sufficiency doesn't help the community. Right. And I do, I think it's, I think it's a somewhat enlightened self-interest that, you know, I may not send my kid to public school, but I still care about producing a good public school product that's going to make this community continue to grow and flourish and hopefully be a little less poor and a little less violent. How do you do accountability while also being loving and, and listening? I don't think those are mutually exclusive at all. I think, um, I mean, you have to love to, to, to ask the questions in the first place, but you still need to see that, that the investments you're making are producing the result you intended to. Again, sometimes that's just simply as simple as, as serving meals if you're the Mid-South Food Bank. But yeah, if, if, at the point at which I'm investing money in the Mid-South Food Bank and we're not serving you know, thousands of people a day, then, then probably I should think about investing somewhere else. But fortunately, that, that is a good investment. It seems that generational giving is important to you and your team because if you're wanting to continue to grow assets under management and you want to continue to have innovation in these funds to raise capital through and deploy, that generational giving is huge. Is that fair? Generational giving is incredibly important. And it's not just important. It's important for, in general, it's important for Memphis in particular. Uh, and it's, it's particularly important for us, I think, in part because, uh, you know, I talked about the roots. So many of our 
the families that live here are from here and their succeeding generations have tended to be here as well too. So you're, you're, you're literally trying to invest in the community that your children and grandchildren will hopefully get some of the benefit from. But yes, intergenerational giving is something that is, is incredibly important to us. Um, we're investing in a, in, in a next gen program where we're trying to work with some self-selected young professionals who want to be more professional and more thoughtful about their philanthropic giving. So we're going to be operating that program this fall. Um, but is it know, like a intensive or? Yeah, it's, 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 it's an intensive, it's, it's a weekend long kind of immersion program that, uh, that we've developed in association with some of our peers cities. But, you know, we've worked, we've been around for 53 years. And so we're, we're, We've worked with a lot of families where we're into the where we're now working with the second and in some cases third generations, and boy, it's you can't write a manual on it because it's it's as different as as individuals are. So, uh, we've worked with families that that all come around the table willingly and all have the same views of of the world, but uh, that's that's pretty unusual. I, I'm more familiar with families that you come around the table with with multiple generations and and there may be as many opinions on what makes the world a better place as there are people sitting around the table. When you think of a somebody that comes to mind, not their name specifically, but who's gotten it right, what does that look like to you? Well, when when you get it right, it's uh for one thing it's recognizing everybody f- where they are and not trying to to move them one place or another. It's listening and listening, you know, Listening in families is sometimes very challenging because there's so much baggage that goes along with multi-generational relationships, either, well, either parents dealing with their children or children having dealt with their parents for, for, for decades. So I, I think that it's on both sides of that, um, parents and children and grandchildren recognizing where the, their other family members are coming from and why they're there. And not just assuming that you're you're you have a monopoly on on perspective, and I see that at all of those generations. I see you know grandparents who think that they're the only ones that know how things are, and I see a you know a twenty four year old grandchild who believes that they're the only ones that know this is the way it is now. That's the way it was great for you in the nineteen sixties, but this is the way it is now. So the ones that have been successful are the ones that 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 beat their family members on their own terms and given their own histories. And the flip side of that is families that get it wrong. Families that get it wrong are the ones that don't want to listen to each other. That, uh, and that's, uh, it, it's, it's, it can be heartbreaking. Has your own life been shaped since you've been here, you and your families? I don't know that I've changed a whole lot. I don't know that, that my experiences with my family has changed a lot. I don't know that I'm a dramatically different person than I was. I took a, well, this is my favorite story to tell on my wife. And hopefully this is okay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when I came here, I took a 96% cut in pay. And my wife only asked me one question, and that is just tell me we'll be able to send our kids to college. I'm like, wow, that, with that kind of a, a, a change in our family income, her only concern was whether we could educate our children. It had nothing to do with lifestyle. She nothing to do is like, you know, are we still going to be able to eat out or, or you know, go to Grizzlies games or, or do whatever else we'd like to do that she only was only wanted to be sure that, that we did the most important thing we could do is and that was educate our children. Do you ever feel like you made a mistake by doing it? No, no, I, um, uh, I've got a, I've got a weird yardstick on that one too. 
So in my prior life, I had a lot of securities uh, licenses that I had worked very hard to, to earn. Um, and they can live in limbo. If you, if you leave the field, they, they can live in limbo for two years. Right. And I was afraid that once I, because, you know, when I made this dramatic move, I, I knew what I was leaving. I knew I f- what I thought I was going toward, but you never know until you, you jump into it exactly what the, what, what the life's going to be like. And I wasn't sure how much I was going to miss what I was leaving behind. But I did know that, that the clock was ticking, and then in two years from, from whenever the date is, the ability to go back would, would dry up and blow away because all my licenses were going to be gone. Um, so I thought that about a month or two after coming here, and I thought about it again after I'd been here for about three years. <laughs> and I, I realized, oh, wow, I, I lost all my licenses, I guess. <laughs> um, but I crossed that threshold without realizing it. So that's how I realized I must have been pretty happy with the decision I made because I wasn't worried about it when the time came. Yeah. I thought you were going to go a different way with that story that you had to make a point to burn the ships. No. no but it sounds like it happened, happened no, no, out, no. Of, out yeah. of the natural flow. Yeah. I saw that just general philanthropic giving increased 4% as a whole, like 400 and some odd billion as a country, United States, yeah. give or take a little bit. The Giving USA study. What are needs right now in this space that you see gaps that need to be filled around the country? Well, I think our view is that we had a lot of issues before COVID. And COVID, which seemed to be this huge healthcare or, or public health crisis, really just accentuated all the needs we already had. So for people that were in poverty, it, it, it hit them the hardest. Uh, for people that, that, that had trouble accessing health care, uh, they had even more trouble and, and were even more disadvantaged. People who uh, were having trouble uh, holding jobs, the, the, the job market became even more fragile. So I, I think our view is that the same issues that this community has been dealing with for a long time, whether that's education, uh, job growth, uh, job preparedness, then the ancillary things that come with that, like crime and those kinds of things, they're the same as they ever were. And we need to just keep focusing on um, kind of what those issues are as they evolve over time or as the, as the, the specific, specific responses evolve over time. But it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. It's, it's, the same, it's using the same eye to, um, to see where the, where the needs are. And they're, they're the same as they were. Um, it never stops. It doesn't And you're stop. saying as the world continues to become more globalized, and if people say there's opportunity through technology and globalization, that might create opportunity for some, but it's only going to create more of a need for communities that everyone's a part of and people that have been dealt a hand in a way that's very difficult. And so the community foundation, the need of it, the demand for it, and the impact of it is going to be even more needed and important in the future just as now. Absolutely. 100%. It's interesting how you think about that with how things continue to spread. And, you know, again, spread out gets more wide, but then then you see the need of still community matters. Community does matter. And, and even if, even as we start to tackle some of these issues, there's always something that we can do to make it a better place. Um, so the communities that have been, other communities that have been transformed by one thing or another, um, and all of a sudden have a, a, a windfall of whatever, 
there are still things they can do to, to, to be better. Um, and in our case, um, it's a pretty steep hill to begin with. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to be uh, optimistic and say, you know, we're, we're going to be tackling all these big issues and, and uh, 15 years from now, we'll be markedly ahead of where we are today. And, and I hope that is the case. Uh, and if it is the case, there will still be other challenges. Uh, but if it's not the case, we'll, we'll still be dealing with those same challenges and we can't be disappointed or discouraged. We, we still have to just tackle the issues that are ahead of us. Feel some fear in saying this, but it seems appropriate. So if I'm wrong, please tell me. But it's like if you lose the community foundation, you you lose the heart of philanthropy in that city. It's the glue that holds it together but because it represents the hearts of the people to that community that are committed to the progress and flourishment of that city. And if people continue to leave that city or leave that area, the city itself can't do that through taxation through government, and these are the people that are actually committed. Is that fair? I think that's true, and I, I think that, you know, it, it, it's great to see the, the big private foundations, but I, I think the average person, the, our average donor, will, will look at them and say, well, I'm never going to have the kinds of resources that they have, and that may be true, but they can still make a huge difference in this community by coming together through, through the community foundation and help make this a better place, even though they may never be, you know, a billionaire with their own foundation. What's the point of having your own foundation? I mean, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way to the people that do here or in any other market, but why would you even do that? Well, I mean, people create private foundations to pursue their personal philanthropic goals. I mean, Bill, Bill Gates has some very specific things he's trying to do with his philanthropy. But if you got a billion dollars in assets... Why not lump it in? Or four or ten in his yeah. case. And then you leverage and that gives, you get the fee base on the deal to help longevity. And then why not? Well, I mean, that's certainly the way I feel. But, but, but there are individuals who say, I've got a particular vision for what I can do with, with my wealth. And I have every right, and it's a very American thing. I have every right to, to pursue what I want with my, with my assets and my wealth. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see them, you know, I, I always think that as a community we can do great things. But yeah, I'll, I'll also say that individual philanthropists have made investments that I wouldn't have made, but they've turned into kind of interesting things too. So, But you could still do that through the Donor Advice Fund. Yeah, you could. Yeah, the, As to why you would have a private foundation as opposed to just do it through a Donor Advice Fund, uh, to me, I've got a very practical answer to that, and that is hiring staff. So if I want to do my own grant making and I, I want to hire staff to 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 do grant making, then uh, I really need to do that. You can't really do that through a donor advice fund. So you really need to hire. You need to create a, a private foundation to do that. When the time comes for you to transition, and you think about where you're at today, me to retirement or from this planet, <laughs> <laughs> retirement. And we talked earlier before we started recording that the largest community foundation in the United States is Silicon Valley, which ten billion. Uh, I think they're bigger than that. Okay. 12 or 14, yeah. So what skill sets or what will the person need to be like to take things to a new level when you move on? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that they've got to be in touch with Memphis. And that doesn't mean they have to be from Memphis, but they have to be in touch with the diversity that is Memphis. So that's, that's part of it. And I think that maybe... They might need to look more like Memphis than I do. 
because from here on, you know, we're, we're trying to take the foundation to the position that it needs to, to be in the center of, of philanthropic impact. But in order to maintain that and sustain that, we have to truly touch um, the hearts and needs of everybody in the community. And that's, that's, that's going to require somebody that, that has credibility across the community that um, they can speak to all corners of the community in a credible fashion. They also have to have some specific skills. They also have to be running a multi-billion dollar or a billion dollar or more financial institution. But I think that you can hire people to do that as, as, as we've done somewhat too. So I think you have to have a vision for, for this community and for the true diversity of this community. And so what you're saying is if you have somebody – that doesn't fully represent the city it serves, then you're not going to fully build relationships and buy-in across all of the city. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's and, exactly right. And then you're also saying if that person does, is not skilled from an operational standpoint, a leadership standpoint, capital raise standpoint, then it's going to stagnate. Right. So you've got to find both. Right. That sounds like a hard to find. <laughs> I think so. I bet that's probably kept th- you up a little bit. I think so. It, you know, community foundations are, are are an odd animal, and I and I because I, I've seen people in the field move uh, you know, like from foundation to foundation as you do in any other field, and it just always blows my mind when I see that because like I, I don't I don't see how you could have this job without feeling in in living Memphis. So Atlanta is a bigger foundation. If there's an opening for, for president of, of that foundation, I, I just can't see, oh, now I'm going to just go be Atlanta. I, and I don't mean to put anybody down that, that, has, that has made those moves, and it, but it doesn't seem to happen that often. It seems like so often that when, you go to, when, when the larger foundations look for new leadership, they tend to find it pretty close to home, either, either inside their own offices or, or trying to convert a broken-down investment banker like me. <laughs> but... And in fact, Atlanta just did hire a new CEO after the founding CEO who'd been there for about 40 years retired. And uh, they, they found that person close to home in Atlanta from a, from a private foundation, I might add. Mm-hmm. So I, so I, I think it's, I, I do think that community foundations are, are uniquely of their community. And um, while some of the skills are, are transferable, the, the, the heart for the community for that specific community and the knowledge of the community and what makes your community, this community in particular, unique, you know, you can't, you can't teach that. Right. See, there's got to be some sort of emotional connection there. I think so. Last question I got. Is there any story that comes to mind that you haven't shared already of where you got assets into the hands of the right people at the right time and you've been able to see what they've been able to do and you'll never forget just the impact. I, I'm, I'm going to, I tell this story a lot and I usually am not, not recorded when I'm telling the story. Right. We have a lot of nonprofits in this community that, that are pretty small operations. Um, and this, this story goes back to actually um, when I was a member of the board and I was actually chair of one of our grant committees and we were doing what we were calling nonprofit, nonprofit capacity building. What is that? That's making an investment in a nonprofit to make them better at what they do. They already know what they're doing. They already are producing whatever they're producing, but, but maybe with a small investment, they can get better at what they're doing. Um, and I'm going to get some of these details wrong, and I apologize, but I'm, I'm going to call out the agency. Memphis Area Legal Services um, provides on the streets legal 
advice and in courtroom advice or, or service to um, folks that can't afford whatever it is that, that, that they need legal support for. Like a lot of, and this is now going back more than 15 years, probably probably close to 20 years. Um, at that time, they were a very small organization that had, you know, the classic nonprofit. You know, they had hand-me-down furniture. They had hand-me-down everything, including hand-me-down computer equipment, which put them at a huge disadvantage when they went into a courtroom because they're they go into a courtroom and they're up against you know big law firms that have all the resources that that they need. And they serve a multi-county area. But in those days, in order to do intake on a case, they had to bring somebody to their offices in downtown Memphis, sit them down, and they would do intake on a, on a hand-me-down computer that was not networked to anything else. We made a fairly modest investment that they had to match, which that's part of what we do, too, is, is we, we use our resources to help encourage other people to, to come alongside with us and, and, and invest Make in the Make them find that money. Yeah. But a multiplier effect. Yep. And it also makes them flex their fundraising muscles a little bit, which is helpful too. I'm going to get the, these these numbers wrong, but I, I, what they were able to do with a relatively small investment is they were able to buy uh, networked laptops, which created mobility and and connectability. So they were able to travel uh, in, instead of having to bring everybody down to their office in, in downtown Memphis. They were able to. Um, this is where I'm going to get the numbers wrong. They were able to increase their caseload. By by a factor by by a, by an integral factor like two three four times I don't remember what the number was, but they were able to dramatically increase their caseload with fewer lawyers. All through that investment. All through that investment, it was just making them more efficient at what they did, and they they've kind of gone on from there. They've done great things since then too, but it's 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 but the, but the their heart their commitment to it. They always had the commitment to the work, but they per, they would persevere when they were. You know, I mean, when they had all these obstacles right. of the people they were competing with, but right. what they believed in and those people that they were representing. And then once you gave them that, those assets, it just, again, it increased the amount of the multiplier effect on the number of people they were able to impact. And they were already in the game. Right. I mean, you talk about measurable outcomes. It, I can, it, they can demonstrably show that they were able to significantly increase the work, the important work that they were doing um, with a very modest investment. So find the right people give them the money, and just increase the amount of people that are able to be helped and impacted. Correct. That's it every time. Yep. Well, I asked you at the beginning, I said, if this if this was not enjoyable, then that'd be awkward. And you said <laughs> something like that. It was, it, it was fun. Okay. Well, I have a lot of respect for you. I, I could talk about what we do all, all day. So, Well, I'm sometimes a betting man, but I bet that uh, people are going to be benefited by hearing how you think through things and how you steward capital your heart, what you see in others, and what you want for the future. So I'm very grateful that you do this. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.